Hello and welcome to the IOTICS podcast. We've got something a little bit different for you this time. We're on a short summer hiatus. And as a result, we thought, let's have a little bit of bonus content where we look behind the scenes at some of the people involved in IOTICS. So we're starting this week with co-founder, co-inventor, and all-round legend, Mark Wharton. I hope you enjoy. What's the mood like at the moment for Mark Wharton? The mood for me is madly busy, actually. Um, The Repair Cafe thing has taken off absurdly. I've been on the radio. I'm in the Perez. We're in What's On in West Suffolk. Got 100 plus people on the on the Facebook group for the Repair Cafe and people are starting to do things. So this is great, you know, that's really good. I'm really enjoying working with the school and I'm enjoying playing in three bands. So yeah, retirement is good. Oh. <laughs> and then <laughs> I've also I've got some bees. Uh, somebody is getting out of beekeeping. So I've got two replacement hives sitting in the wings waiting to come back. Sitting in the wings, very good. Uh, I see what you did there. I didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> and you've been on a long road with IOTICS. So yes. I think we met, I was thinking about this uh, this morning, I think we met 10 years ago Was it when the wise old magi of mm. IOTICS, you and Ian and Paul, came mm. to where I was working. Which is, make uh, it clear. Yeah. Make it clear to talk about... Um, what you're up to and so on and we had a frankly insane four-hour conversation about how soap is made in the industrial revolution and, and so on and then we went out for lunch and I my mind was aflame so we've been on a long uh, journey how would you characterize where we're at now in terms of your feelings around biotics well I think if I if it told me back those years ago 10 years it would take 10 years before people understood what we were talking about, I would have found that very difficult to you know, to comprehend. Didn't realise quite how, how kind of ground-changing and unusual the approach was that we were suggesting. And also didn't realise quite how conservative the industry is in order that, you know, it's supposed to be innovative and everything in computing and things, but they're not. They're very stuck in their ways. You know, it doesn't look like this, therefore I don't want it. It's not what I'm used to. And the thing that kept me awake at night was the technology choices. You know, I, that was my call. And I had to say, it has to be like this. It won't work unless it's like this. And chose some of the most unpopular technologies at that time. You know, talking about semantic web and decentralization back in 2012, 13. You're a crazy person. So um, that was the thing that really stuck with me was this like, this seems right. It feels right. It feels different and spent all that time explaining to it. And then suddenly within the last year, people have started going, oh, yeah, we need ontologies and semantics. And and yes, it has to be decentralized because centralization won't work. And and it's now starting to feel like, like few <laughs> after after 10 years of, of doing it, people starting to understand. And it, it's crazy to think about that because think about the independence project back. That was 2014. So, so, go on, tell, the, tell me about the independence project. The independence project, project was people with um, early onset dementia, and we put um, IoT devices in their house and allowed their carer 
and not some other people to see what they were up to, if they put the kettle on, if they'd opened a door and things like that. And that was good because at least it, it made them feel that the their person they cared for was safe and, you know, and up and about and hadn't had a fall or anything like that. But the thing we didn't expect happen was it changed the nature of the relationship between the carer and the caree. Um, rather than saying, no, did you have your lunch and did you take your meds and those kind of things? The conversation was, well, I know that you've had your lunch because I saw that the, the oven was on. And I know you've had a cup of tea because I can see the kettle is on. I know you're all right because you've been walking through the doors and those kind of things. And it changed the nature of the relationship between those two people. They could now talk about other things rather than just the minutiae of the day because the carer was certain that they were there. They didn't have to keep calling them every moment to say, have you done this, that or the other? Because they knew. And that was really unexpected. That was that was a very simple, very early um, microcosm of what you can do if you start to share real-time data with with people and the differences it can make and not necessarily the kind of, oh, yes, it will do this. There are unexpected and emergent behaviours that come out of this that, to me, are very, very gratifying. And I think if you, know, you take that project and you update that now to the customers in vulnerable situations, thing, it's a very similar idea. And some of those ideas around what's going on with the northern gas networks and the energy village... It's like putting things in people's houses. So without being intrusive, you can see their patterns of consumption or whether it's got... And then if you if somebody is vulnerable, you might notice if they've had a fall or they're changing their behaviour from what would normally be. Like normally have a cup of tea at 10 o'clock in the morning. They haven't had a cup of tea. You know, that might be fine, but it might mean that they've had a fall. And if you can do this in a non-intrusive, non-big brothery kind of way, I think that's a huge step forward in... Allowing people to be, what's the point of independence? Allowing people to stay in their homes and living in a healthy life for as long as they possibly can. Now, the harsh commercial reality is it costs a lot of money to put people in homes. If you can keep them in their own house, doing their own thing, keeping their independence with just, you know, one or two little bits of help, that's a, that's a big step forward. Yeah, I I, I do remember um, hearing part of the feedback from one of the, the participants who was living with dementia talking about the nature of the relationship change with their informal carer, so it was a husband or, mm. or so on. Um, and the fact that actually it was the change back. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a kind of evolution to something new. It was that after receiving a diagnosis, mm. this lifelong partner had become a carer. Uh, and, it, and it was, as you say, all the, did you do this? Did you remember that? Did you remember to switch this off? Uh, and then it reverted back to, well, I now talk to my husband and he asked me what I thought of Countdown or how the thing, you know, like, as mm. opposed to as opposed to asking carer questions, we can go back to the nature of the relationship we have. You also touched on a, a couple of other projects there um, that I just want to make sure that I understand. So the Northern Gas Networks Energy Village. Explain to me more about that. What's the shape of that? So they've, they've built sort of a microcosm of a village. They've made new but uh, they've tried to represent the state of the UK housing market in terms of the different ages of the buildings and the and the different amount of you know connectivity and those kind of things because um, they want to see the patterns of people's um, consumption of not just gas but of electricity and water and other resources and they're starting off from the position which I think is correct in that there's no way one organization one enterprise will 
be able to control all of that data. It's going to be a hodgepodge. It's going to be some from the water and some from the gas and some from the electricity. And then uh, what if it's, um, you know, filling their electric, electric vehicle or, you know, even something like the petrol vehicles? You know, just what they do, what patterns of behavior are there? And then that allows you to then start to think, well, how could we improve the carbon footprint of that and nudge them into different directions or whatever it is, but at least you've got a more realistic understanding of how people really live. I, I think it's fascinating when you talk about the journey you've been on and, and the decisions you made that we've got to the point now that the Northern Gas Network's Customer Energy Village is like a physical twin of a housing stock. So they've got these nine, is it, nine, nine houses representing different eras. So there's a terrace house and a Victorian house and a mm. 60s prefab and all these kind of things, representing all these areas. So you've got physical, tangible, real world proxies for things. And then you've got the kind of biotics digital version of then, okay, and now now can we have a, a virtual entity that will enable that sharing and so on. Hmm. And it must be gratifying to see that that as an ecosystem of seven or, or eight players coming together. You mentioned the gas network, the electricity, the water, white goods manufacturers all all hmm. sharing around seeing that as a manifestation of something that 10 plus years ago you were like this is the way it must be that there won't be a centralized person at the center who has the the big brother view or the god's eye view or whatever how much yes you can you can look back with 2020 hindsight and think oh yeah of course i i thought of those things but it was um the the story that always amuses me is when we first showed iotics to anybody it was to hs2 and I remember standing up in front of them and saying, we've made this thing. It's really quite useful. You could have like a virtual version of HS2 in the cloud and then have the real one at the bottom. Um, but I don't know what to call it. I don't know. There's no name for this thing that we've just made. And then just listening to you talk just then, um, the cyber physical fabric or cyber physical infrastructure makes a lot of sense to me because there's the physical in the real world, you know, the energy village. And then there's the cyber in the cloud but it's the infrastructure piece that was always missing. Okay, yes, you can have IoT devices where you can get something that measures the door opening or closing and brings that into the cloud. That's one thing. But you're missing on the infrastructure piece, which is allowing the door open close sensor to talk to somebody who's got the fridge. And that's the bit that that was the real reason we started IOTICS. We knew that the Internet of Things was going to do the cyber physical part of it. It looked like the piece that was missing was the infrastructure part, the bit that allowed this thing to talk to that thing. And that's was the, I suppose that was the, the, the major difference between anything and anything else. And that came with it one other thing which people don't tend to think about, which was the focus on the asset, on an individual instance of something, you know, the crystallization. It's not... It's not every village, it's that village. It's not all houses, it's that house. Yes, and I can go down to the individual thing and get the data about that house, even if it might come from lots and lots of different things. And that's a radical change over the way that the industry tends to think of these things. You tend to go, oh, I need the stuff from the fridge, so I'll go to Samsung, whoever makes the fridge, and I'll get the data from Samsung. I want to go to the, the boiler and see how the boiler's doing. Well, I better go to the people who make the boilers and get the data from there. And 
you're missing out the fact that in the real world, there's a crystallization of that. There are real houses, real people living in them, and they are instances. They're not, you know, they're unique instances of something that could be a class, you know, 1930s semi-detached houses or whatever. But that's that particular one. That's 27 Acacia Avenue. That's that house. Let's go there and focus on that one asset. And that, so those kind of, the infrastructure piece and the asset focus, I think, was the bits that, that was diff, very, very different about the approach that we started whenever it was, 2012, 13. <laughs> well, and when you, when you talk about the kind of radical difference, Justin Anderson, who had been involved in all sorts of projects, including Hypercat, and he's now at the Digital Twin Hub, uh, was telling a story uh, the other day about going sailing. He was about seven with his dad, and they were on the start line. It was a race. They're on the start line and 40 boats take off in this direction, straight ahead. Uh, and they head off at a 45 degree angle and they're going off. Uh, and and Justin turns to his dad and says, why are we going this way? Like, what, what what's happening? The race is that way. The finish line is that way. Why aren't we going that way? And his dad said, well, you just see over there on the horizon, you can just start to see ripples on the ocean. There is wind over there. Like, If we go that way, we will pick up the wind and we'll come back and we'll suddenly leap ahead of all of these all these other boats, all these 39 other boats, let's say. And they did, and it was successful, and yay. Uh, but that, that combination of both a feel that it's the right thing to do, you don't necessarily have all the empirical evidence that going 45 degrees out towards a spot in the middle of the ocean is the right answer. But there are some little indicators that I can see some ripples on the, on the wave, and that, that's the way to go, and that's how we do it. But... Can you identify what the things were that made you think that that decentralization, the lack of ownership, the asset focus of let's think about a single instance, let's share the information, let's not have a hub, let's not follow what everyone else was doing. Can you think what those things were that, that sparked that? Um, goodness, I, I really relate to that story in that you set off in a totally different direction and you spend all of your time going, is this right? Am I right? You, you wake up in a sweat at three in the morning going... Nobody understands it. Am I crazy? And hopefully you get vindicated in the end. The wind does blow and blow you back. Um, I think I go back, you know, with the 2020 hindsight, I look back on things and I go back in my career and look at things that I did and think, actually, that all contributed to IOTICS, but I didn't realize it at the time. It was an aggregation of a whole bunch of ideas and things which had bugged the hell out of me for the rest of my career. And then I went, oh, wait a minute, we could do it like this. And one of the ones was the APIs. And <laughs> What's an API? An application programming interface. So the idea was where a computer can talk to another computer. They make a, an interface between the two of them. And then so one computer can say, hello, other computer, can you tell me something? You can think of it a bit like a waiter in a restaurant. You don't. The waiter doesn't cook the food. You talk to the waiter, and the waiter goes to the chefs, and the chefs cook the food, and the waiter brings it back to you. Now, one of the the APIs that we did back in the in the days when I was working in mobile phones was the one between the applications in the mobile phone and the the bit of the phone that does the calls. In the very early days, they were uh, using AT commands, which comes from fax technology from the from the twenties. And we thought there's got to be a better way than that. And we used a thing called interface description language. So the interface description defines the uh, the API in ways that are uh, understandable to other computers, but only if they really understand. And then that bit 
really stuck with me. It's like, if we're going to make something where these sensors can talk to each other, they've got to be in a ways that computers can understand. This is not for people. You know, you've heard right. me talking about, you know, running around the office shouting, "Iotics is not for people. Iotics is for machines. And um, so one machine has got to be able to say something that the other machine can interpret and without ambiguity. That's the bit that I really... And, and give so me an example, because surely that's easy, right? I mean, surely... Well, if I said to you, the temperature is 27, what would you think? Is that a nice day or not? Well... I guess if I'm in the UK, it's a nice day. If I'm in North America, it's probably a bit chilly. Yes. Well, there we go. That's a classic example. And those examples exist all over the place. They crashed a, a space probe into Mars because somebody was using metric and other people were using imperial. Um, and nobody said it's just 53 is a number. Okay, if I interpret it as pound feet, it means something. If I turn it in Newton meters, it means something completely different. Um, this this so always reminds me of that, that joke about there's two fish in a tank and one turns to the other and says, how do you drive this thing? <laughs> well, yes, that's ambiguity will kill all of this. You, you can't go around like that. Like tanks, you know, sending goldfish into battle is what I used to call it. It's like, OK, we've got a tank. Oh, great. That's really good. Oh, yeah, it's got goldfish in it. Oh, not so good. <laughs> so those kind of things where you can sort of see sometimes where somebody calls it A and somebody else calls it B, you're fine because A is not not B, that's fine. But if somebody calls it A and somebody else calls it A, but they're not the same thing, it's really, really complicated. And an example I often use is football. So in the rest of the world, apart from North America, football is a game played with round balls and 11 players a team. In America, football is played with oval balls and I lost count of how many people <laughs> there are in the team because they keep changing them all the time. Um, and you can get chat GPT to get itself in such a confused state if you start talking about American football and European football. It will go, oh, yeah, I get the concept of European football and South American football and stuff like that, and then to start talking about oval balls. And this is the bit that worries me, is if we say, if we put the onus all on AI to understand this, you're going to end up with misinterpretations and miscategorizations. And it doesn't take much of that to blow the whole of the sort of data ecosystem out of the thing. Yeah. Oh, AI says it's a such and such. And everybody goes, of course, it's a such and such because AI says so. And then it's not such a such and such and things fall over or, you know, ambulances don't get there on time or whatever it is. You know, this is important stuff. So and disambiguity, disambiguating data is very, very important, which then puts the onus on it needs metadata. You can't just send the data, like I was saying, the 27 to you. Yeah? yeah. I say, this is the data, it's 27. The metadata is, one, it's a temperature, and two, it's in Celsius. Right. So, it's so not, it's the, the, the metadata is the data about the data. The data about the data. The thing that's really, I've come to realize recently is that the way you talk about metadata is one of the most important things. Because if I sent you that 27, and then I told you the metadata in Swahili, then it's not much use. You can say it's metadata, but if you don't understand Swahili, then it's useless to you. So I'm beginning to think that the most important thing we can do with this interoperability and data ecosystems is define some standard about metadata. And one of the examples I think of is the QWERTY keyboard. QWERTY keyboards are bonkers. 
But if everybody uses a QWERTY keyboard, we know that the keys, pre-press those keys, and those letters appear on the screen. Now, that's fine. That's about the right level of standardization, because then you can use a QWERTY keyboard to write whatever you like. And in quite a lot of language, which use those, you know, those letters. But, it, you know, it wouldn't make much sense to somebody in Thailand or Japan. But, you know, as long as we, we can use that, there's enough of a standard so people can describe things without being too prescriptive. And it's not a standard which says, OK, we all have to agree to call the same things the same thing, because people won't. Sort of looping back to your decentralization point, it's like you won't ever get everybody to agree about stuff. They just don't. Why did everyone else go the other way? And why are some people continuing to go that way? What What is it that's holding everyone back from saying, ah, oh, yes, I see what Mark's talking about. That's got to be the way. Goodness, that's a very difficult question. Because there's still, <laughs> there's still part of me that thinks, am I sailing off into the distance to carry with your analogy? The, the, um, and I'm not going to win the race, but I'm just going to be stuck out with my seven-year-old son, disappointed in his dad, <laughs> becalmed <laughs> in the middle of the sea. <laughs> so why do people do it that way? I think it's easy. Here's a thought that came to me only this morning, which is you can think of data like recycling. It's very tempting with the recycling. There's this concept of wish cycling, isn't it? So I bet this could be recycled. So you throw it in the recycling bin and you go, well, that's fine. Well, I've put all my recycling in the right recycling bin. I'm a, I'm a good person. I've done my civic duties. Um, and then what you don't realize is some poor person at the far end of it has to take that recycling that you've done and then split it up into cardboard and plastics and metal and, and yada, yada, yada. I think people treat their data the same way. They don't care. They say, oh, look, we've got all this data about such and such. And we'll pour it into this big recycling bin of data. And you're pushing the onus on interpreting that data to the far end. And this is, again, I'm going, sorry to bang on about ambiguities and things. But if you do that, you're asking for people to get things wrong. Because you, as the owner of that data, understand it better than anybody else. So if anybody's going to describe it or interpret it, it should be you. So really, I should be putting my cardboard and my tins and my aluminium and my plastics and things into separate things because I understand them and I'm not relying on the next person to do it. Coming back to your question is why don't people change is because they kind of think that an API is enough and it's too much hassle for them to think that beyond that because I guess they're kind of bound up. This is our stuff. You know, we make cars and that's what we do. And that's fine. If anybody wants to know about our car, they can come and look at our API and there's a car. And you go, well, well, great, super. But what if that car's in a, an accident? Then you've got your car and somebody else's car and you've got the breakdown people and you might have the ambulance service and then you might have the people who want to fix the car and the owner of the car. And, you know, then suddenly you've gone from it's a car and that's all it is and we're happy with it to, oh, no, there are now 17 different people involved in that and then any ambiguity is going to be really really difficult is it you know if you can't describe whether it's diesel or electric or or petrol in an unambiguous way then you could do all sorts of bad things you know risks of fire and those kind of things i think that's really interesting because i know that 
IOTICS has, has had conversations, continues has conversations in the automotive industry where things like that breakdown piece or an accident are problems that are everyone's and no one's. Mm. Yeah, in, in that it's kind of, it's not for the car manufacturer to own the entire data ecosystem for a breakdown. So it's not their problem, but equally it's everyone's problem because the driver of the car wants his car serviced and, and repaired and back on the road and, and, and out and so on. But also, is there not something about the fact that each of the players in that, and let, let's use that example. So you, you have a, a car that's made by someone, the owner of the car, the distributor of the car, the, you know, who the driver bought it from, the breakdown service, and then possibly some call centers and so on. Is there not also a concern that about them not wanting to share with each other? You know, in the same way that it's, it's not any one person's problem, they each have a relationship with their data and the car owner or the, or, or the asset, to go back to your point on the asset. Is there not a resistance to then saying, well, you know, I, the distributor, don't want to share my data on this individual with... Oh, yeah. Well, very much so, because I think in the past, because of the non-asset focus, they were worried about sharing all of their data, you know, stripping naked and standing like that. This is it. You can see everything. Whereas if you share data on an asset focus, and you can even share data of a te- over a temporal basis, like, okay, I'm only going to share you this data for the course of this accident, and in two weeks when it's all fixed, that's it. It's all turned off. And people can't think of that granularity. I'm only going to share you about this car for this period of time. That's why they're frightened of sharing. is because they don't have really control over their data in a way that they'd really like. And I'm just interested in this point about, especially with the recycling analogy, because one of of the things that we hear from um, actually in recycling is, well, why don't we have lots and lots and lots of different bins uh, for all the different types and the different types of plastics and the different types of metal cans? And the argument is if you make it too complex for people, they just won't bother doing it at all. Hmm. But I'd counter that with there's also a piece about education and people understanding the impact. So um, I was at a, an event at the British Antarctic Survey where they were talking about plastics and, and they were talking about black plastic. And apparently black plastic can't be recycled. Uh, and so they had this amazing panel that had someone from the plastics industry, someone from the supermarket, someone from a recycling charity on it. And they said, well, why do we have black plastic for meat, classically? Why do we have black plastic for meat? And the plastic industry were like, well, yeah, we know black plastic can't be recycled, so we don't really like producing it. But the supermarkets asked for it. And the supermarkets said, well, yeah, we don't really like using it because we're also trying to minimise our carbon footprint and our, our pollution. But customers want it. And then there was someone, you know, customers sat there going, well, why do we want it? Has anyone tested this recently? Has anyone told anyone of the impact of the decision you're making? Is there something in this about the storytelling around the impact of what would be possible if you did it differently and the impact of not doing it? Mm. The problems that you need as cyber-physical infrastructure or whatever you want to call it, data ecosystems, those problems are now front and centre of the enterprise's concerns. What's an, an example? Um, well, the one example I was thinking of was the Portsmouth Port example, the Shape Project. You've got um, ESG, isn't it? And environment, sustainability, and governance. You've got those problems, which require companies to talk to other companies about their data and co- cooperate about it, so that they can come up with their ESG reporting and 
they can prove that they are doing these things properly. They don't own all of that data. And now th that problem's now smacked them in the face because they've spent so far, they've gone, oh, it's all right. We're just recycling, you know, throw it in the bin, then it's good. And there's an API to the bin so we can get data out. Super, you know, aren't we clever? And then suddenly they're going, oh, actually, I need data from these other guys who are monitoring the such and such. And they go, well, their data is all rubbish. I can't get to it. And they go, oh, wait a minute. Um, so is ours, if you look back at it. Now there's actually those conversations are starting to happen, you know, because there's a requirement for, for ESG reporting and for loads of other things to to share a little piece of data between two things. And and the story that from Shape Project, within about two or three weeks of starting the Shape Project, they'd found that some of the ships in the Portsmouth port were more polluting than the others. And only because they were now monitoring the air quality and they could link that air quality to the ship movements and who was in which berth in the port. And they'd never managed to mash all of that data together before. The air quality comes from this system, so I have to go and get that. Super. And then, oh, well, then which berth is that ship in? And, oh, when did it turn its engines on? It was too hard and too context-specific to go around and find all of that data. And then when you have a data ecosystem, you go, oh, look at that. And can I correlate, cross-correlate that with that? Oh, yes, I can. And that, that, even though the data is coming in from all these different places. These problems have already existed. Um, like a, one of those um, optical illusions where you don't see it, you don't see it. Suddenly you go, oh, oh, look, it's a rabbit or is it a duck? And then you have you suddenly this realization. You go, oh, look. And then you can't go back to the world where you couldn't see it. You can't, you can't go back. And now people are having this realization that these problems exist or they have existed. And the solution to them is not in one person's hands. It's forcing people to cooperate and the way they cooperate is with data. And if you want to solve these problems, you can't cooperate with poor quality data that's badly described. Otherwise, you'll get these ambiguities and the, and the mis mismatch between this, this bit and that bit and, and something will go horribly wrong. Is the answer not just to, to go to someone and say, well, you hold all, like, you could have all the information and we could come to a, a source, a trusted source and say, okay, well, this, you know, Jeff or, or big tech Jeff holds all the information and there you go, that problem solved. A, a single source of truth that we can all go to and you go, thanks very much. That sounds very appealing, doesn't it? It's kind of well, for a couple of reasons. One is the central solutions are very much easier to understand. Everybody gets the idea. And also it's nice because it kind of throws it over the fence and says, oh, big technology people will sort it out because they've got big brains and they live in you know, Silicon Valley. But that kind of argument falls over very quickly when you start to think about, I don't know, retention schedules, for example. You know, OK, you can't just continually pour data into databases. Eventually they fill up. I know you can get. Hadoop clusters that are gone forever and ever and ever, but there's some environmental impact in storing all of that data. So at some point, you're going to have to throw some of it away. So they're going to go, uh, okay, what's the governance on that data? How long do we keep it for? And then one company will go, oh, I want it to be kept for a year. And the other company will say, oh, that's about a month or something like that. And you've got all these conflicting um, needs. Well, I want to share that data with so-and-so, but not with them. And um, only over this period of time. And what you're saying is that you're throwing not just the data into the central thing, you're throwing the ownership of the data and the governance of that data into a centralized thing. My normal example is, okay, let's say you've got Samsung and LG, 
they are not going to want to put their data in the same database. Mercedes and BMW are not going to want to put their data in the same database. It's just not going to do it. It's not in human nature to do it. If you say to people, this is your stuff and you're in control of what you share with other people and for how long, then they've got the, the levers. They've got the, the dials and knobs that they can say, OK, fine, I'm, I'm happy to share with you because there's been this accident. Let's do that. And then after two weeks, it's gone. No more of it. And that's essentially decentralized. You can't put that into one big place and then give everybody the knobs on that central place. Give everybody control of their own stuff and allow them to join networks. And it matches what we were talking about, local centralization and looser couplings. I can talk about my stuff in my domain and cluster with the people in my domain. I'm in electricity supply, say, and the people in water they're in their own domain and they're doing their own thing. But every occasionally we might want to say, well, actually, something happening in the water industry, a flood or something like that is going to flood some electricity substation and knock out the supply for half of, half of Liverpool. I, I don't know. But that kind of thing. So you'd think that thing would work, wouldn't you, in, in a centralised way. But the scale of it will defeat you again in the end as well. I think one of the things that I reflect on listening to you is while this technology isn't for people. It's for the benefit of people and for the benefit of society and so on, but it's not for people directly. It's amazing how much it mirrors how people actually work. So that when I think about kind of social networks, and I, I don't just mean the social network in a kind of uh, Aaron Sorkin type way, but the social networks that we all have, you know, you have your friends from school or your friends from university or your friends from your village at home or your town or your street or wherever else and you have your own language and behaviors when you're with them but they're not all in every group and they're not all connected to every group but there might be connections between people at the edges and fringes you might have taken a friend from school to play in a band with you or to play football with you or whatever it might be so you have that mirroring of how the the world works for us as people but also the, that if I own my data, I, I have the control to develop trust with people, both at an individual level. You know, I think about, especially in a post-pandemic world, how we use Zoom or Teams or Google Meet or other, other conferencing tools are available, um, where I can blur my background or I can choose how much information I share with you. And, and, and I might start being quite closed off and not sharing very much and you know I don't have all the pictures of my children and family and so on on display but over time I might develop a kind of reciprocal relationship with an individual or organization where I say actually now I'm happy to share more of myself does that resonate for you oh, very very much so and it's something actually I haven't really realized when you're talking talk about social networks I think you're right about the clustering is you know I like music and tennis and cycling and not many people like all three of those things but I sometimes find somebody who plays tennis that is musical. And we go, oh, I didn't know you liked music. Oh, yeah, da, 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 da. You can find those, those interconnections. And then when you're talking about social networks, I thought, interestingly, one of the best reasons for using something like Facebook is because of the groups. So even though it's a world broader social network, there are groups about people who like a particular kind of car or retro hi-fi in my cases, you know. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and there are very nerdy groups where people do nerdy things and they'd like to talk about Series 1 Land Rovers and how many rivets they have and those kind of things. And that's fine. They're in their little groups. But they're in a broader network. 
and they can say who one's allowed into their group and who's not allowed into their group and stuff like that. You know, you could think of joining a Teams meeting with your video turned off and your audio turned off. Nobody knows anything about you apart from your name, maybe. And then you're listening to the conversation and you go, actually, I'd quite like to contribute. So you turn on your video and you turn on your audio and you go, I'd like to make my point and turn it back off again. (laughs) Um, So I think people can start to do that with their data. They can then start to cooperate on these, you know, these are species-wide problems. These are, you know, species-threatening problems that are around. You don't have to think too hard about things like the pandemic, like you mentioned, and climate change and um, global supply chain and those kind of things. It's huge problems that have got so many different moving parts that there's no way one person or one central thing will ever work. And, I, I mean, slightly ironically, considering some of the press at the moment, can we draw hope from things like social networks i mean because what struck me when you were talking about the the groups uh, and so on was that and i and i'm going to do a very poor pen portrait here of, of, of growth but when the facebook started it wasn't a global network for everyone and had content for everyone it started with harvard and then a small selection of other US universities when you had to have those university email addresses in order to be able to sign up. So there was instant benefit to being a member. You know, if I walk into a, a network of six billion people, how do I find something of value to me? How do I find something that I get value from? And I think a failing of a lot of decentralized things is there's that kind of, oh, once everyone's involved, it will be valuable to you. Once all six billion people will be online, you can find the people that you live near. But actually what they did was start in pockets. So it had a, a vision that it would be everywhere and all things. Is that something you see for the adoption of these kind of technologies? I mean, does it need to cure all ills and that kind of global thing to be worth starting? No, I think that's um, that's a fallacy actually. And also it's profoundly obstructive if you say, oh, we can't have anything until we have everything, then you'd never do anything. So one of the examples back from an an earlier time when we were working with the rail industry was about electricity spikes in the overhead cables. And the network rail people have these special yellow banana trains that they send along the lines, and they can measure these spikes. They haven't got very many of them because they're fearfully expensive. And then the people who actually operated the ordinary train said, well, we know where they are because we run the trains up and down this line 20, 30 times a day. And we could share that little piece of data with you. And I think what's going to happen is that enlightened self-interest idea. The, the, the semantic web people call it the open world assumption. It's like not knowing something means it's not known rather than it's false. So rather than saying... I don't know this, therefore it's false. I don't know this, therefore it's unknown, and I can find somebody who knows it. And then once you've got that idea is that if I don't have to spend millions of pounds measuring something because somebody else already does it, I can get the data from them. A small piece of that, a small piece of cooperation, what could I give them in exchange? You know, data as barter, data as currency. And, and, and that will then draw them out, you know, like wild animals you could have tempt them, <laughs> tempt them with little pieces of food <laughs> and then they'll come out and talk to you and and the example that 
I often use to try and explain this whole idea of the um, open world is if you ask the, the FA in the UK, are there any football teams in Paris? They'll look in their database and they'll go, no, there aren't. There aren't any football teams in Paris. Um, the open world assumption says if there aren't any football teams in Paris, it means we don't know if there are any football teams in Paris, but you go and talk to the French FA and they'll tell you how many football teams there are in Paris. That kind of taking the blinkers away from your data and saying, because I don't know it, it's not true. I don't know it, therefore somebody else might know it. And then you're back into, you know, fairly traditional human behaviours of how much do you want for that gourd in the market? I think the other thing coming out of that is the evolution of a use case. And it drives me nuts when people go, what's the business case for such and such? And then we have to go with that business case. And we've solved that business case. And we go, oh, super duper. That's all lovely. Thank you very much. And then somebody goes, oh, now we can do that. We can do this. No, well, that wasn't in the original brief. And we're not, we're not doing it. You know, that's the thing. It's like, what's the use case for a road? You know, you could go, well, you can drive along it. Well, great. That's, what's, you know, okay, you could charge people for the M6, you know, thing. Well, that's great. But then that's not really the end of that use case, is it? Because who, where are these people going? They've got a lorry full of cornflakes. Where's that going? You know, it evolves. You can't just put these things in boxes and say, there it is. That's it solved. Ta-da. Aren't we clever? It's like, well, okay, now we've done that. We can now do this. Or now we've done that. We now understand this. So we can go over there and do that as well. I think think that's lovely because that fundamentally changes the conversation from what do I have and what can I do with it? to what's out there and what might we do with it and then oh now that i've done this i mean it's almost like that improv thing of yes and so yes now that i've done this and what can we do next and where can we go next and that seems to me to be a much more human again way of how do we solve these big problems you know uh, i was talking to ellie howe from Portsmouth actually who was talking about how some people are paralysed by the scale of these problems is so vast. It's not that you're ambivalent about it, it's that you don't know where to begin. But actually, if you can do the yes and of, well, we can do this bit, and then that will evolve and we can build on it. We can do that bit and that will evolve. And are there examples of that that you've seen? Well, let's use Ellie, you know, Ellie from the port. Um, And now she has people knocking on her door saying, oh, I see you've got this data ecosystem. Can we join in because we can see the benefit of what you've already got? And now we can expand it to something else. And that's the yes and, isn't it? Yes, I see you've got that and how clever it is. Rather than having to reinvent another one and plonk it over there or throw that one away and rebuild it in version 2.0, that's another part of this decentralized piece is you can just bolt new bits on, join them into the network, and they can go, oh, look, now we've got actually version 1.1 which takes whatever's in 1.1, extends it a little bit, and that's really great. You know, we don't have to keep reinventing it and redoing it and reforging all of the integrations between these systems. We've got a system that works. We can enrich it, and then new use case will come along. We'll get some more data in it, and somebody will go, well, because I've got A and B, now I can do C. Now, that's the accumulative, if you like, that kind of thing, is that you've got something, you build on it, and you build on it, and you build on it, rather than having to go, I've got this, and I need something else to go alongside it. Just, no, just expand the reach of the one you've already got. And again, that's a you know, very human way of doing things. Yes, and <laughs> it, it strikes me that we've seen this before, right? For anyone who, who thinks this sounds like a techno-utopia or, or it's something, isn't that the web? 
I mean, I mean, I'm positively. I'm not yeah. saying, but 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 as in, when I think of seeing a video on YouTube where someone's taken audio from over here and a, another video from somewhere else and mashed it together and smooched it and created something new, which then inspires someone else to create something new, is that what we're talking about for data? Well, yes. It, the the only difference I think. But the early days of the web, the early days of the web, great, because, OK, you've got a file on your computer that I'd like, basically. So I want to go and find your computer and um, find that file. And what it was lacking was the searchability. So if you think about the early web, it didn't have a search engine. It had Yahoo, which is yet another hierarchical organization. So they, they were constantly trying to get people to agree to put everything in this kind of super... Dewey Decimal System of you know of index cards of what things were on the internet, and that doesn't work. And, and Google proved that it doesn't work by saying, "Well, why don't we just look at the content on the internet and interpret it and build a big index of the internet?" Oh, great! Now we've got the thing that you can do. You know, you can go. I want to find something about frogs that live in the Amazon rainforest. Okay, there it is. I've got stuff about frogs, and you know, I'm a bit worried about that analogy in terms of data because. Humans are really good at semantics. If you showed me a picture of a frog and he said this was from the Amazon rainforest, I'd have a pretty good idea that that was a frog and what the rainforest was and stuff like that. Computers have no clue like that. That's why ChatGPT falls over about oval balls in football. So the web of data, which is what you're talking about, you know, there's, there are people, the web of things, and the uh, people are talking about at W3C. It doesn't work without the semantics. You've got to say, this is a frog. It's this species. And frogs are this. And here's the, you know, here's the whole hierarchy of animals that a computer can understand. And go, right, good. OK, I've got that. That's a frog. And frogs are like this. And they're like salamanders. And they're like newts. But they're not the same as horses. You know, OK, good. You know, <laughs> well, it's true, isn't it? There are those local connections, things which are amphibians. And amphibians, horses are not. You know, and that's worth knowing. And people know that, <laughs> you know, and you could have a, a horse and you can ride a horse. You can't ride a frog. You know, those are things that computers are really bad at. And by adding metadata to these things, you know, this is a class of animal that you can't put a saddle on <laughs> and ride around. Um, is a very valuable thing to know, especially when you're talking about data and you don't want those kind of mistakes. Oh, you gave me this data, I thought I could write it. No, 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 this is not writable data. This is different. Uh, oh, could have told me. Well, yeah, I did in the metadata. We're seeing from, from things like the Northern Gas Network's Customer Energy Village, we see from the work that's being done by Shape Your Care, Portsmouth Gas Report, yeah, people are seeing it. The wind is blowing us, all of us collectively, not 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 just you and I, Otis, but all of us collectively, towards something. What is it that we need to bear in mind? What what are the follies we need to avoid, or the things that we need to do? Like, how can someone listening to this say, "Okay, great. What does this mean for me? What can I do? How do I act? How do I behave?" I think let's go back to the open world assumption. Then that's how you should act. You should say. I can't know everything and I trust that other people will be able to help me. And you think of it like that. And then you reverse it. You look at that in the mirror and you can think, if I think like that, I think other people can help me, then other people will look back at me and think the same thing. Yes, and it becomes a two-way process. Then, then I have a responsibility for my own world 
and describing my own data for my own use. But if I want people to play nice in these things like that, I've got to be able to say, here's some data that you want. It's really nicely described. I want something from you. If you don't play those rules, I won't be able to benefit from that. So what I would say is to people thinking about this is think of a problem where you don't know everything and where you actually need to know some stuff. And then you think to yourself, well, I could start a project to know this, but what if somebody else already does? One of those ones was the, um, how many people are on the trains? That was another example, wasn't it? Well, people join the train Wi-Fi, and you've got a fairly good idea, because not everybody joins the train Wi-Fi, but let's say 10% of people join the train Wi-Fi. If you've got 100 people on the Wi-Fi on a train, you've roughly got 1,000 people on the train. So it's not perfect, but it is something that the train people probably like to know but they have no way of measuring it. So they could put people counters and do that kind of stuff on the train and try and work it all out. Somebody else already knows it. And then the people with the Wi-Fi might want to know where the trains actually are or the train people can tell them. So I've got something that you want, you've got something that I want. Let's think of it like that. How, how can I present what I have in a way that makes it accessible to other people? And well, let's talk about the fair data principles. Can they find it? Can they access it? Is it interoperable and can they reuse it for something else? Then you've got FAIR, fair data. So that's what I would encourage people to do is stop thinking about it. It's my data, it's for me. Start thinking it's our data for us. Thanks to Mark for being our guest and being such a good sport on this week's episode. Thanks to Runway East Studios for hosting us, to Joe Davis for the graphics. IOTIC's podcast is a Snaffle podcast production. And see us next time for another little bit of bonus content behind the scenes at IOTIC's.